Good morning, everyone. Yes, our first reading is from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 24. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace 
because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And then turning to Romans chapter 8, reading from verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, We face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Good morning, everybody. Great to hear you chatting. Great to see you all here today as well. Um, As we get into Acts 12, a big idea for today is that the right perspective makes all the difference. The right perspective makes all the difference. I was a kid growing up in the 90s. Put your hand up if you're a 90s kid. Yay. And in the 90s, your parents or neighbor in the street, as in my case, may have had one of these horrible books called The Magic Eyes. Do you remember them? You got to go cross-eyed and put it right in your face and move it back. And if you're really clever and get the right perspective, you'll see a picture. And I never could do it. Um, I just failed at having the right perspective to see that. Maybe you could. I didn't want to put it too big on the screen because it would make you all get sore eyes. There were just terrible things. Um, maybe you could. Great. My kids, um, we, we want them to have the right perspective in, in life and, and with their emotions. And uh, we use the Likert scale. If you're a nurse, you might use it for pain. But we've adapted it for kids' emotions. And we say when something's happening, is this a 10 or is this a 0? And then we say a 10 might be this really bad thing, you know, uh, or a zero might be it's not, and and you're acting like it's a nine, when, do you think might be it's a three? And we would help them get the perspective on how they're feeling, their emotions, and what life's like, what they're going through, because the right perspective does make all the difference. 
And we want the right perspective to see the magic eye if you grew up in the 90s. You want the right perspective as parents so that our kids can have resilience and understanding and know their emotions and, and work through uh, the challenges of life on their own. That perspective makes all the difference, doesn't it? Because the right perspective makes all the difference. The right perspective to know, in fact, that God is actually at work in all things, even if you can't see it. And that's what we come to terms with and see in Acts chapter 12, God's hidden hand. Now, between Acts 11 and 12, we have to know a few key things that have happened. First of all, there's a time of great peace in the church. Saul, who was persecuting the church, is saved, preaches Jesus as Lord. Time of peace still exists. The church is being strengthened from frequent visits from the apostles and other church members are going and strengthening, growing the believers. That happens again and again in the story. More Gentiles, those non-Jewish folks, are becoming followers of Jesus. And the church is slowly seeing that God's good news of Jesus is for every nation, tribe, tongue, and people group. Not only that, the church begins to rally practical support. There's a need, there's a famine in Jerusalem, and the churches around gather their support and actually practically help out other churches. It's a really flourishing time to be one of God's people for these few years. But things get really dark, like really, really dark, really quickly, because almost out of nowhere, Herod Agrippa I, he's the Roman king of the area, he captures some Christians and kills James, who is the brother of John, one of the followers of Jesus. Herod is the grandson, or this Herod is the grandson of the Herod that tried to kill Jesus as a baby in the beginning of the Gospels. Herod is manic, Herod loves power. History tells us that he worked hard at forming political alliances in ruthless ways. He only reigned for about four years, but he was nuts. He killed, captured, and starved people to get what he wanted. And so, at this moment in Acts 12, a new form of persecution begins, not from Jews who don't like the message of Jesus or the Jesus followers, but intense persecution from the Romans. But the Romans are doing it for different reasons. They don't really care about Jesus. For them, it's just political. Because in verse 3, it says, when he saw this was met with approval among the Jews. A few dead Jesus followers to get peace with the Jewish group that were the bulk of the people living there? No brainer, says Herod. Let's do it. Dark days to be a follower of Jesus. However, even though a Roman king starts to cause trouble, by the end of the chapter, things look very different. You see, Acts 12 is a solid reminder that no influence, no worldly influence can stand in the way of the will of God. Herod comes undone by God's hidden hand. Because it's just as we've seen, as Jeff helpfully reminded us, the mission of the risen King Jesus cannot be stopped. Not even from an evil Roman king. And to read this today, it should be a great comfort for you and me. Because while in my day-to-day life, I don't have an Acts 12 perspective on God's hidden hand at work in all things, I do have Acts chapter 12. Because I have now a very tangible picture of what it looks like for God to work in persecution and trials and hard things, you see. Moreover, what Acts 12 tells us in story form, Paul, many years later, tells us in a few short verses in Romans 8, 31 to 39. And in the middle of those verses, he says, For your sake, God, 
we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Because the truth is, Christians aren't very popular in the world's eyes, and it's a hard thing to swallow that. It's a perspective that only God can give. Like the magic eye, it might be tricky to comprehend at first, but you see, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, death can't win. Persecution in prison isn't the end. Daily trials don't get the final voice. We have to come to terms with all of Romans 8, 31 to 39, that trouble, hardship, famine, persecution, nakedness, danger, sword, even death itself, isn't able to sever a life gently held in the hands of Jesus. Because God's hidden hand is right here today, and in a prison cell, or when Herod rules with evil and malice, or in a hospital bed, or with tears in your eyes, or with an uncertain future this week, because God did not spare his own son, but gave Jesus up for us all, we are now more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if today you're here and you feel shaky and uncertain and overwhelmed with all that's going on in your life, with all that's happening in our world, may you know that God is watching over you just like Peter and James and the church that his word is still multiplying and growing even in these times and even if god's hand is hidden it is well known so let me give you three fresh perspectives that we need today from romans 12 uh, acts 12 and romans 8 the first perspective is in the first 19 verses and it's this perspective on being treated unfairly so james is dead the jews are happy Herod grabs Peter. Peter's another leader in the church. He hasn't done anything wrong, by the way. He's not broken any laws. He's not a wanted man. He just loves Jesus. And Herod uses this as a political move. He proceeds to seize Peter in verse 3, but it happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison. He was guarded very solidly by four groups of soldiers. And so we leave Acts chapter 4 with Peter being kept in prison. Quite simply, the timing isn't right to kill him. The festival of unleavened bread is going on. It was a big deal for the Jews. It's like a public holiday today, long weekend. And so if you want to make a big political statement and kill one of the leaders of the church, don't do it when everyone's on holiday. You wait till the day after. So Herod puts Peter in prison. Chained between two soldiers for a few days. Then in verse 5, this, this ray of light bursts through. It's a curious ray because we read, but... Into all of that, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. They're praying for Peter's release. With James's death in their mind's eye, you can imagine how desperate a time this was. This is one of those gut-wrenching moments when you await for news, you have no power to do anything, what's the outcome going to be? You might know the feeling, unable to physically do anything to fix the situation. And so this is the church, they gather, and right now they pray. Maybe you can relate to that. Or maybe, secretly, you just snigger at the idea of prayer. I mean, it does seem a little fanciful and weird, doesn't it, to pray? A bit wishful, maybe? A couple of observations. First of all, notice that prayer isn't their last-ditch effort, as if they've just run out of ideas. 
You know, A, B, C, D, if we get to Z, we'll pray. Because prayer's been the pattern of God's people and acts. You see it at key moments, right from the beginning. They met together to pray. This is what they're normally doing. Now they just pray earnestly for God to release Peter. We also see that the prayer is grounded in God, the personal God, who we've encountered week after week after week in the book of Acts. Which means prayer in this way is actually a concrete way of facing impassable moments in our life. Because prayer is directed to a personal God who relates to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Prayer is not a spiritual good vibe or an exercising incentive positive thoughts to Peter. Prayer lets us grieve, lament, cry, ask, not to the wind, but to our God who hears. Prayer is the perspective that says God's trustworthy. It's asking a trustworthy God, therefore, who's present in a prison cell and a prayer meeting, and the other side of death, as James found out, just to spare Peter from the same fate. Moreover, the church doesn't know the outcome. They can't see God's hand here, but it's a well-known hand. Because Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified, Lord, let your will be done. Because of Jesus who stands in heaven interceding for us each day, letting God know that his wounds and his grace is sufficient for us. Because Luke wants us to see when he writes this that the God we pray to is both powerful and in control. And when we take this perspective, it gives us a peace and a calm. Because look at what Peter's doing in verse 6. The most, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. The, the night before, Peter's sleeping, in prison, chained between two guards. Peter knows, for all of his faults at this moment, that, that Jesus really does have his life in his hands. Untroubled by what lies ahead, he can sleep. But God's not sleeping, and neither is the church, because, as we read, the most amazing thing happens in verse 7. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck, he hit Peter on the side, and said, quick, get up! And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. So far in Acts, each week, we just seem to encounter Luke writing about angels always... God's messengers moving the story forward. Nothing beyond a shadow of a doubt can declare that God is at work in all of this. He he goes to great lengths to show that when he does something new and continues his story of redemptive history, it's definitely God, not just Peter's good idea or the church either. And so Peter wakes up and he's half asleep and he stumbles out of prison and then as quickly as angel comes, in verse 10, the angel just disappears And for a few moments, heaven and earth have overlapped. The divine and the ordinary give way for God's miraculous hand, like we've seen in the book of Exodus, for example. All to shout clearly that nothing can stand in the way of God's purpose and will. He has plans for Peter, and Herod, and guards, and jail, and chains can't stop that. And the same would be true for you and me. But remember, James is dead at this point. Remember that Paul, in only a few years, will spend years and years in the same situation, chained to a guard, stuck in prison, writing the rest of the New Testament. What we have is God's will unfolding. We don't get to pick and choose what God's will is. 
And eventually, Peter rubs his eyes, he feels the wind on his face, his his hands are not sore from the chains, and he kind of comes to, and he's very surprised. It says he came, in verse 11, he came to and said, I know, without a doubt, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And the reality of escape dawns on him, and so he travels to uh, the house of Mary, the mother of John, verse 12. This is the mother of John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And they were gathered and they were praying. And verse 13, Peter knocked on the door and Rhoda uh, came out and answered the door. Now remember last time Peter was in jail was Acts 4 and he got right up the next day, cracked a door and started preaching Jesus and everyone was amazed that he was out of jail. But he doesn't do it this time. He's in grave danger to stay around. And having just escaped death, it will be utter foolishness to just dance in front of Herod saying, look at me, I'm free. The divine rescue doesn't cause Peter to act rashly. Wisdom says it's not safe to stick around anymore. You need to go. Because God's hand isn't an excuse for arrogant bravado here. Peter knew he was in danger and he had to leave. So he quickly goes to the Christians and tells them everything that's happened. And in this most comical scene, Rhoda hears Peter, sees him, and then runs in and leaves him out the front and desperately tries to convince everyone Peter's actually for real life at the front door. She was so overjoyed at verse 14, she ran back and said, Peter, 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 you're out of your mind, they said in verse 15. Out of your mind, Rhoda. And she kept insisting, no, it really is, come and have a look. And eventually they said, well, it can't really be Peter, maybe it's his angel. And eventually, with Peter knocking and Rhoda making all this commotion, Peter comes in and they're just gobsmacked. And then he says, tell James, not not the James that just died, this is um, Jesus' brother James, who wrote the book of James, tell James that I have to go. But here's what happened. And then he left for another place. You see, the prayer of God's people was effective, but it was imperfect. Because they struggled to grasp that God would actually do what they're asking. Do you see? It's not the case that if you pray hard and believe enough, your faith and effort is rewarded. Prayer is not about your effort or faith, but God's character and nature and will. Because after all, these Christians thought she was making it up, praying for Peter to be released. Peter's here. Oh, you're out your mind. Peter's really here. Must be his angel. Peter's really here. You're nuts. Peter's really here. Oh, he's really here. Do you see? They didn't believe God would answer the prayer. The only explanation they could come up with it was his angel. Now, Jews thought very highly of angels, and, and they had very favorable towards them and thought that they acted in, in very unique ways. So it wasn't out of the ordinary for a Jewish person to think that. But isn't this story so great that even when God's people aren't very faithful, God is so much more faithful. God is so certain. That even the church in Acts is a little slow sometimes and dull to get what God's up to. You know, God hears our prayers. God knows our shaky hearts. And eventually, Peter gets in, and and from here on in, he has to leave, and he comes back in Acts 15, but from now on, he's never going to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James will hold that mantle. And eventually, Peter goes into the far regions and writes his letters, his letter of 1 Peter. And then the morning dawns. Peter's long gone. And we see how manic and evil Herod really is, because he kills all the guards. 
Now, that's the typical way, by the way, the ancient leaders dealt with those who would escape prison. You sign up for a prison guard, a prisoner escapes, you die, that's what happened. It was a dog-eat-dog world. But Herod is evil. Whereas God is the good king who rescues his people from sin and death and gives grace and mercy, even when they fail and don't get it, Herod is not like that at all. The perspective here in the first 19 verses, in trials and persecution, is first of all to lean into God through prayer. God is more concrete than you can imagine. He's just as much in a prison cell as in a prayer meeting, and that should fill us with great confidence and hope. And then we have another perspective on egos that Luke writes, again showing how worldly powers don't get the final say. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He was quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they joined together and sought an audience with him, and they secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So Herod's a bit upset. He kills some, uh, the guards. He goes up north. He has some business there, and he's strategically starving the people of Tyre and Sidon at this point. And then they work through some political back channels and they secure an audience and say, please give us relief and peace and food. Can you see that Herod's not persecuting just the church here? Most tyrants don't just hate the church, they just hate anyone not on board with their agenda, right? I mean, history shows us that over and over again. Plenty of people feel the evil of others' actions. The perspective Luke wants us to see is that the church isn't unique in Herod's persecution. People do evil to other people all the time, and it's horrible. But God also rules prisons and prayer meetings and egos that are evil, because Herod is just frankly getting out of control. He actually wants to be God. On the appointed day, in verse 20, wearing his royal robes, Herod sat on his throne and delivered a public address. And then the people shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. At the start of the chapter, we saw the death of someone who loves Jesus, James. And now we see the death of someone who doesn't love God, but wants to be God. Two very different deaths, one God ruling over them both. In fact, we know from the Jewish historian Josephus that Herod's robes were made of pure silver and he had the meeting first thing in the morning when the sun was coming up so that people would see the shining, the sun shining off of his robes so he'd look even more fancy than what he is. To the man who wanted to look like a god, he ends up dead. To the man who wanted to starve the people of the country, he ended up as food for the worms. Even when the odds are against God's kingdom like Herod's regime, it'll actually flourish. And the very last verse gives us this assurance in verse 24. It's a perspective on church growth that we need. But, we had one at the start, didn't we? But the people were praying. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. The chapter began so well for Herod and looked so dark for the church. And now it ends with the word of God triumphing above all else. It spreads like a vein across your body, pumping with life-giving blood. The Word of God spreads, giving life to those who hear and believe. It is active. And as it goes, it replicates, it self-generates, multiplying as lives begin to flourish under God's loving rule and care. And that's a really great ending in such a dark chapter. 
very relevant. I mean, I often look around Adelaide and Golden Grove and, and I've thought, is God's hand really at work in all this? Maybe you look in your workplace or your family life and think the same thing. Is God's word spreading? Is God's hand even present? It's hidden, I know it's hidden, but is it actually doing something or is God kind of just letting everyone run around like ants on top of it? But you see, verse 24 is the perspective that I need as I pray and stress and worry and navigate and see evil and hard things. Because yes, God is at work. God is for his people. He will judge evil and he will lead them through life gently into death whenever that may be. James in prison or Peter much later. Because thanks be to God that his work continued to flourish and spread from this moment because eventually Paul comes on the scene, writes his letters and plants churches. Eventually from there it spreads and one day by God's kindness the church comes to Australia or the gospel comes and churches are planted and the gospel grows and God's word comes to you and it comes to me today. Because you see the perspective of Acts 12 is that God's sovereign yet gentle hand is ruling over you and me and others. That God will deal with those who oppose the gospel like Herod. He'll keep spreading his word. Moreover, when we have that that perspective, we can actually spend our time and energy in that space too. Growing ourselves, watching his word spread in our families, with our spouses, in our church in the world, through prayer and leaning into God, also that we can say the rest of Romans eight thirty one to 39, so that we can take the perspective that says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wouldn't you like to go through life with that perspective too? Because I know that I do. And Acts 12 is the story of how God loves to work, given to us so that we too can have the perspective that God's hand is at work in all things. Even when I can't see it, I can trust it. And I pray that that will be true of you and me as we go into this week. Let's pray. Our great God, from the beginning of time, your hand has been at work, fashioning and forming your world and people in your image. And then even when sin came in and broke and distorted your world, your hand was still there, moving, choosing, showing grace and kindness to a people that are far less perfect than we dare to imagine. Yet, in your wonderful will, through Abraham's line, you sent Jesus, the Messiah, the rescuer for you and me, us today, that we need. Lord, give us a perspective that goes on from this life that says, for nothing can separate us from your love. And Father, as we face our own challenges and trials this coming week, may we know that your hidden hand is in all things and that we can trust you because Jesus has conquered Satan, sin and death and will meet us gently on the other side, welcoming us home forever to be with you. So, Father, give us that perspective. May we live in that joy and hope that you bring in all things. May you be given the glory. Amen.